Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Syracuse is playing for the national title. It's too long, and Syracuse is your national champion. Who's out? Who's out? Who's out? Who's out? Who's out? What's up, Syracuse fans? It's Mike McAllister from AllSyracuse.com with episode 82 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast, presented by Bet Online, Hoffman Sausage Company, and Purple Banana. Josh Crawford and Griffin Delapena join me for this episode to discuss Syracuse's 40-7 loss to North Carolina. Not specifically breaking down that individual game, but more so what we've seen in the last two games and what it means for the Orange moving forward. Football is back and Bet Online is your number one information source for all your sports wagering info with up-to-the-minute stats, news, scores, and matchup breakdowns. Get the latest game odds, spreads, and totals from the NFL and college football at your fingertips with BetOnline's real-time updates on statistics, news, and odds. From Week 1 all the way to the college football playoff and Super Bowl, BetOnline gives you access to the best football promotions and contests available anywhere online. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to get in on the action. Remember to use our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. So we're down one person today, and just like Syracuse football has the next man up mentality, so are we, except we don't really have a next man up. We're just going to kind of all together pick up the slack as uh, Sydney is a bit under the weather, so she's not joining us for this week, but uh, hopefully she will be back at it next week. She's in with the trainers and is going to work really, really hard to get back on the field next week. So um, we we certainly hope that that she feels better. But um, listen, this was an ugly game. Syracuse gets blown out by North Carolina, 40 to seven. Um, there weren't very many people predicting Syracuse to win this game, but I think most still expected a much better performance and a much better showing from the Syracuse side. And that certainly didn't happen. Um, I think analyzing this game is kind of pointless, right? Because Syracuse was just dominating. North Carolina was just much better. They controlled everything from start to finish. There's no point in really going into the nitty gritty of how all of that happened. So instead, we are going to talk about one play in particular that was, I think, the most discussed play of the game that happened in the first quarter. And then we're going to just look more high level as to where Syracuse football is this season, what the last two games means for where they can go moving forward. I have Josh and Griffin with me to break it all down. We're going to start with the first quarter play that had everyone talking. And that was the Syracuse was trailing three to nothing. The defense got a nice red zone stop on North Carolina's first possession. The offense got a first down, but then couldn't do much after that. And then the defense forces another punt. On the North Carolina punt, Dennis Jaquez, who we later found out is now done for the season, unfortunately for him, he blocked the punt and the ball bounced around, was picked up by North Carolina's punter, and he attempted to run for the first down. So he only needed two yards for the first down, and he didn't really have any other choice because he can't kick it a second time. So he takes off 
and looked for a moment like he was going to get it. And then a couple of Syracuse players hit him about a yard to a half a yard short of the marker. It looked watching it live like he was clearly short. They showed the replay because he was hit really hard and was down on the ground for quite a while. They showed the replay. The replay showed he was clearly short. Then they come back from commercial and say that they actually gave him the line to gain. Then Dino Babers challenges it. They show another replay. He's still clearly short. And the officials rule that the the ruling on the field stands and give North Carolina the ball back. They go down and score a touchdown. And the game was pretty much over from that point. I want to get your guys' reaction when the play first happened and what you thought about the uh, review process and it being upheld. We're going to go to you first, Josh. Um, It was sick. I even tweeted it out right as happened. Only with Syracuse would a block punt end up in the, a first down for the opposing team. True um, story. True story. <laughs> it's definitely not the best way to start. Like you said, I think we can all we all three have eyes. We had, what, six pair, 12 pair between us with all of us having four eyes. So I think that we can all clearly see that he was at least a yard short based on what the referees and the replay that, the, uh, that, that was you were seeing on TV. But I said, me and Griffin probably lead into this as well. When you got a situation like that where, A, you know, USC rips off a 14-play drive, the first first drive of the game, where it's not even a quick strike thing. They're just casually moving the ball, you know, up the field on, on you. And even them not even not, not scoring a touchdown versus a field goal was more of, um, you know, maintenance on their part than anything SU did to stop them. Once you come out of that drive where they convert the block punt to a first down, you have touchdown, touchdown, touchdown by UNC, and then three and out, and then punt, punt for us. Clearly, clearly a, a wrong call, the wrong call, at least from our 12 eyes vision. But you can't, I can't lay that at the foot in terms of what the game momentum was. Hey, we really didn't even have the momentum to go in with. And it looked like from the first snap of the ball that we were the overmatched team. So for me, wrong call, definitely something that. Like you said, even the people that usually don't gripe about the officiating have got you know the SU community, at least on Twitter, pretty upset. But there was 100 plays that went into the game that was probably more important and more impactful in terms of deciding the outcome besides that one that the rest missed. So I, we, there's so many other things to address that need to be fixed. And like I said before, officiating is you, – you have, you have a built-in um, human error with officiating. That's not going to go away as much as um, you collapse your lungs talking about it, Mike. And there's just so many other things that this team has wrong with it in this game that I, I'm not gonna lay that at the foot of why they lost any type of give that any type of substance of uh any give, give that any type of substance to why that could have happened. Want to eat healthy like Syracuse football players? Then you want Purple Banana. Located on Marshall Street next to Varsity Pizza, Purple Banana is known for its acai bowls, but offers many more bases than just acai with over 25 toppings to choose from. They also offer smoothies, cold-pressed juices, oatmeal, and salad. Everything is made from fresh ingredients daily and is colorful, healthy, and delicious. The vast majority of the shop is gluten-free, vegan, and dairy-free with options for all health-specific needs. Purple Banana is your go-to shop for healthy, delicious options that will have you feeling like a Syracuse Orange athlete. Visit purplebanana315.com or purplebanana315 on Instagram for more. From now until the end of football season, participate in the Smoothie Showdown at Purple Banana to support Syracuse players and their charities. Caleb Okachuku, Justin Barron, and Marla Wax have each created a signature smoothie, 
$1 from the purchase of each of their signature smoothies will go to the charity of the player's choice. The athlete who sells the most smoothies will earn an extra $1,000 for his charity, with an extra $200 going to the other player's charities as well. Now, I, I do take exceptions to that. I'm very kind to the officials. I don't know what you're talking about with this. Uh. Uh, no, listen, I, I'll, I'll say this. Um, if that call had gone Syracuse's way, um, even in the best case scenario from that point forward, to your point, North Carolina looked clearly like the superior team right from the start. They looked like they had a bit more energy than Syracuse did. I don't think it changes the outcome. I still think North Carolina wins, and they probably win pretty handily. The thing is, momentum is funny. And the only caveat to this is Syracuse did get a red zone stop in on their first possession defensively. On the second possession, they force a punt. You then block a punt and start with the ball in their territory down three, nothing. And you're saying, Hey, that's a pretty decent start for the defense when North Carolina had two weeks to prepare for this game. And so not only do you get two stops, but you also give the ball to your offense in great field position. Maybe it doesn't turn into anything, but what if that momentum rejuvenates Syracuse, gets Syracuse amped up and they come down and score. Maybe it's competitive for a longer period of time and it doesn't look as lopsided as it was in the end. So momentum is funny that I think that could have kept Syracuse in the game more than they were uh, for a longer period of time. But I, I agree with you. I don't think it changes the outcome. My biggest issue with a situation like this is I would encourage everyone to go listen to the way that Dino described his conversations with the officials. They first told him that they reviewed it up in the box and that after they reviewed it, the uh, review officials said, Oh yeah, he got the first down you know, so we're not reversing it. And Dino said, I'm challenging it anyway, because I know he didn't. And then after they reviewed it, a, the review on the challenge was real quick. And second, they told him we didn't have a camera angle that would allow us to change the call. Well, that's different than saying he definitively got it. And the camera angles aren't different when they do the initial review as they are when they do the challenge review. And they should have access to better camera angles than what we see on television. If they only had the angle that we saw on television, it's still easily overturned. So the the fact that they got it wrong initially, reviewed it twice, and still got it wrong both times, that to me is something that is unacceptable for an officiating crew. Human error is one thing, but after you have a chance to go review it, um, there should be some sort of repercussion for screwing that up, regardless of its impact on the final score or the game as a whole. If you allow stuff like that in a game where it doesn't have an impact, then you will have situations where that happens in a game where it does have an impact. So that's my little soapbox, uh, which I will now get off of and hand the reins over to Griffin to get his thoughts. Yeah. So originally when the play happened, I was doing a Colgate broadcast. So I had the game going on and Twitter up on my laptop right next to me. So I was still trying to follow the game. And then I saw that there was a huge review and a challenge. I'm like, well, what happened when I saw the, the replay immediate thought is what you guys were saying that, you know, fourth down stop Syracuse is going to get the ball. But your last point, Mike, about how Dino was having that constant communication with the referees and, and trying to find out, is this a play that is worth challenging? He actually talked about this for a pretty long time after the game against Clemson for very similar reasons and gave a lot of great explanation to all of the reporters about that thought process of what goes into him actually making a challenge call. This seemed pretty cut and dry for him to do this. And the fact that then they come back and say, 
that they never had the proper view to overturn this in general is something that should have been communicated right from the get-go, even though it still makes no sense that that is the case. So I think that's the biggest part that I have an issue with. It is a part of the game. Referees are going to make mistakes. If Syracuse gets the stop there and the ball back, is it a completely different game? Obviously not. Maybe it's 33-7. Obviously, it can be a completely different game from that point of view, but I just don't see the defense being substantial for that much longer. They came out great. They played well, but I think towards the end of the second half, regardless if that play happens, you're still going to have some letdown, which is unfortunate, Um, but it's definitely a sour taste in your mouth for Syracuse and fans as a whole to start a game out like that. No question. Uh, The one thing I'll say is uh, Syracuse would have won 73 to three if that call had been reversed. Um, And you can't prove me wrong on that. So take that. Um, (laughs) Listen, it it is what it is. Uh, The ACC, you know, Dino Babers made a comment during his um, weekly radio show this past Thursday uh, regarding the Tez Walker situation. Tez Walker was suddenly eligible and was eligible, was announced. He was eligible, you know, two days before Syracuse and North Carolina were playing game plan had already been installed. They had already practiced for that game plan. You couldn't really do much at that point. And he made a, you know, they asked him about it during the show and he said, you know, he made a prediction back in August in his family group chat group text that said, watch, he'll become eligible the week of our game. And he said, I can't see the future, but there are certain things with the NCAA and with this conference, he specifically mentioned with this conference, that um, don't surprise me. And so was there a little bit of this conference in the way that that was at least communicated to him, if nothing else? Um, Still, there has to be better communication from the officials at a minimum. Anyway, we'll move on from that and we'll get to the uh, what the the meat of what is going on with Syracuse football. This is the second straight week where both lines were dominated by the opposing lines. Offensive line really struggled to protect Garrett Schrader again, and they couldn't open up anything on, on the ground. Defensively, they struggled to get any pressure on Drake May unless they brought extra rushers. They had the blitz to generate pressure. The three-man front really could not. I think there was maybe one play where Kevon Darton got into the backfield, but otherwise it was just he had all day to sit back there and, and survey the defense, and then uh, you know he took shots all day down the field and was successful on most of them. What's wrong with this line and, and how do you fix it moving forward? You know, maybe putting aside what they have to face this coming week in Florida State, but for the remaining, what is it, five games, I think, after that, how does Syracuse fix this so that it's not this blatant of, of, a, of a disadvantage for them? Uh, we'll start with you, uh, Josh, since you were a former Division One defensive lineman, and I'm curious what uh, what you see and if you think that this can be fixed for Syracuse. It's tailgating season and no one does it better than Hoffman Sausage Company. Beer bratwurst, jalapeno cheddar sausage, kibasi, and bun-lang chicken sausage. Add them to the menu with classic German franks and snappy grillers and fans will go wild. Proudly made in New York since 1879, when you bite into a Hoffman, you experience a little bit of upstate history. Taste tells Hoffman is a proud sponsor of Syracuse University Athletics. Um, starting starting with the the D line is a thing that I identified early in the season, and it's kind of 
they were able to scheme around it with the versatility of guys like Derek, Marlo, uh, Leon, who's really pops. But you you don't have a guy that's your dominant edge threat, or not even dominant. You don't have you don't even have a guy that has that particular body type of a Steve Lynn, of a JT Gear. When you're talking about putting Terry and Caleb out there, especially in that three three five, you're getting a lot of good at everything and not great at one thing because you have only those three down linemen. They need to be able to stand up particularly strong on first or second down with the run because you're not you don't have you're not you don't you don't have as many in the box. You don't have another four down the linemen to offset those um those alignments. So when you don't have a guy that's that that has his hand in the ground consistently that bends that provides a speed rush off the edge you got kd at two probably 270 280 terry at 270 280 caleb around 260 270 you got three d tackle types on there with their hand on the line of scrimmage you don't have a really dedicated pass rusher so when you're not able like you were saying in this game when you're not able to consistently get pressure without bringing four-man pressures five-man pressures and rushing one of those linebackers off the edge it gets hard because that's not something that's consistently sustainable we have a passing attack like a Drake May. You want to have as many guys in, in coverage as possible, and it's not a thing to where you 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 have a spare linebacker overhang to bring a four man or five man pressure. So when you you know we talk about the portal and the um, the the benefits and you know, doubts that it, the benefit the benefits and the stuff that it takes away as a thing to where we lost two of our you know our two primary edge rushers out of the portal, and that's one way that was a thing that Coach Babers really lacked in terms of bringing back. And it's starting to play out. So, like I said, when you have those guys that are your, your best practices are off-ball linebackers, it puts a lot more pressure for them to be in the box and around the line of scrimmage on a rec- on a snap-to-snap basis. And they can't – they're not going to have that same capacity to be in zone coverage to help in deep thirds, things like that, and, you know, you know, make you know, redirect receivers and play up the seams in the way that you would give your more traditional off-ball linebacker roles because they essentially turn into edge rushers when you need them to. So that's that's that on that, and that's something that, like I said, identified early in the season, and they were able to scheme around it. But during this chunk of ACC play, we don't, and then our closest to that, Dennis Aquez, like he's out for the season. So that's the thing to where if that probably is probably not going to get any better. Probably a lot worse, in my opinion. But for the O line, for me, it's um I talked I talked about it a little bit on a podcast with uh with Jeremiah Tommy on Inside Carolina. O-line plays a lot of um, not a lot of X's and O's, a lot of Jimmy and Joe type of action. You have certain schematic things that you can do in terms of like zone blocking or getting guys on with pullers and running counter action to try to offset, you know, small offensive lines, offensive linemen that are going to be quicker and sh- more more shifty laterally than just create power. But for us, like you talked about, Mike, every every guy up front, especially uh, not especially, but even John Ray Reed, the guy that I had a lot of faith in, who would probably been their best lineman. Because Enrique Cruz has been, you know, very up and down, especially in the run game. They're getting dominated. They're getting, they're consistently playing behind the line of the scrimmage, behind the line of scrimmage, which you don't want as an offensive line. And they're not really able to hang their hat on anything. A, in the run game, they're not a consistent run, either whether it be inside zone, whether it be counter. There's not a, there's not a consistent push in the run game that, that you can rely your hat, you can lay your hat on and be like, I can get four yards in this tough situation. And I think you're seeing it play out with the lack of productivity that LeQuinn has been having these these recent games, especially in a game like this when you weren't able to protect Schrader. So schematically, there's some stuff with the, the defensive line that, that may be able to help a guy like uh, Steph with Leon's um, emergence. You could probably drop him down into the, the D line and make him like a full-blown edge rusher DN type because I'm like, you got Derek, you got Leon. You have um, reinforcements for that linebacker group with the, that being kind of the main – the, the biggest, the deepest position on our defense. But for the O-line, 
they just got to get better. They have to be more physical in the run game, and they have to be able to hold up better in pass pro and have better communication because a, a lot of the pressure that you're getting are guys are getting beat, but you're getting getting free runners from the linebacker position because that's just a lack of communication in terms of um, like shifts, which way are they hit, is the center going, and things like that. So there are ways that you could probably scheme up, move personnel around on the defensive line to kind of generate some more pressure. But for O line, they just got to be better. They got to be more physical, and they that cohesion, that communication that they talked about and, and said that was solidified. It's got it's got to show right now, sooner rather than later. Yeah, you know, I I thought the last two games, uh, I know the the conversation around Stephen Linton and his transferring out was that he didn't fit the scheme as well as some of other Syracuse's other defensive linemen. They primarily used him in in like second and third and long obvious pass situations and basically just said go get the quarterback. He wasn't someone that they threw out there on a regular basis, but the last two weeks especially seemed like every time they got either Clemson or North Carolina into third and long they converted and and part of it was because you know they're trying to drop coverage they don't want to blitz on the third and long because then you expose your secondary to a potential big gain which you're trying to prevent and but they didn't have anyone that could just rush the passer and get there and at least you know make them feel you a little bit uh they basically were all, it was almost as if you had no line whatsoever and I thought not having Linton that you could kind of throw in there on the third and eight, third and 10, third and 12 situations. I'm thinking specifically when North Carolina had a third and long and they were kind of like inside their own five, inside their own 10, whatever it was, and still picked up the first down. I think ended up scoring on that drive. Instead of Syracuse getting great field position at midfield, they end up giving up points. That was a situation where you could throw Steve Linton out there and basically say, just go get the quarterback. Don't worry about anything else. Just go get him. And they don't have that guy anymore. And this the last two weeks, you know, really showed how much they miss him. And and I know obviously not having Jatias gear is is a big deal. They were expecting him to be one of their starters, but it's uh it's it's been a struggle. They need someone to step up. I don't know if that means giving Chase Simmons some more snaps and seeing if he can be someone that gives them some some presence out there, but they they gotta find something. Uh you know, maybe Knowlton, who's who was back there was a highly regarded recruit. Maybe he can come in. I I don't know what the situation is, but Griffin, your thoughts on on line play on both sides of the I find it much more concerning on the offensive line because going back, I would say to week four against Army, I think that was the first time when you saw on both lines of scrimmage just being overmatched in the trenches. Offensive line couldn't get a push. Defensive line was getting pushed four yards down the field, and for the first three weeks of the season. I think that they just were better in all facets against their competition, and and that overtook um, maybe some of the telltale signs that we're seeing now in in both line play. But in these last three weeks, it's a consistent nature, and and even Josh mentioned it. You're having LaQuint Allen be almost a non-factor in the run game now because there's no confidence that they can get a push, that they can get a five-yard chunk play on second down when you need it. I'm going to read you the PFF grades for this past game. And at this point, there's just nothing that you can do. Enrique Cruz led all linemen. He was second on the offense with a 70.8 grade. After that, DeAndre Reed with 58.7. Jacob Bradford, 58.1. Mark Petrie with 54.7. And Chris Bleich at 51.2. That's just not going to get the job done. I know that the physicality against a team like Clemson, you're going to be overmatched in that regard. 
But now that you're in the heart of ACC play and every single team in the conference is going to see those stats, you're going to see a very common denominator type game plan from these defenses to be physical, to bring pressure. And if these guys don't have some type of, I would say, common consensus of, okay, we're going to have to come together. These are the different things that we have to do in our blocking assignments. I don't see this getting any better. And that's concerning for the pass game because Garrett Schrader is still going to have no time to throw. And you're also going to see a very talented running back not have a position to play at his full force and to see what his potential is. On the defensive side of the ball, I know that Rocky Long is the godfather of the 3-3-5 defense, but that's your base defense. There are times where you're going to have to go with the flow of the game and change out of that. If that means based on your personnel and you guys both mentioned that you don't really have that edge presence, maybe drop another guy down and go with two defensive tackles to try to plug up the middle and force them to pass. So at least maybe you get some more pressure up the middle. You can't continue to think that these guys are going to just somehow miraculously become great pass rushers like we've talked about from former guys that are not in the program anymore. That's expecting too much, especially at this point in the season. You're going to already know what you're going to get from these guys in week six and beyond. And I think that's something that Syracuse, at least on the defensive end, has more control over to say, okay, this is our talent right now. How can we put them in the best place to succeed? And I think defensive line play, that's a place where you can plug and play different guys in terms of their strengths to make sure that that you do get that pressure defensively. Yeah, you know, you bring up a good point. I'm kind of surprised that on third and long situations, they didn't bring in, you know, a linebacker like, you know, bring in Stefan Thompson to bring in Leon Lowry. And instead of lining them up at linebacker, line them up as defensive linemen. You know, I, I remember the Giants back in the day when they beat the undefeated Patriots and they had that NASCAR defensive line, right? Because they would have all four of their defensive linemen would be speed rushers. So I know Syracuse doesn't have pure speed rushers on this team, but you've got your best options. So bring in Lowry and Thompson, either have them out on the edge and then have your normal defensive ends move inside like Okachuku and and, uh, Lockett. I I don't know, but you got to be able to do something schematically to try to give yourself the best shot. And maybe it does mean that on third and long, even though you don't want to, you got to blitz. Maybe you do. Maybe you got to bring Justin Barron down into the box and have him come off the edge. Maybe you have to blitz a corner. Maybe you got to bring tell Marlo Wax on anything that's third and eight or more. You're blitzing because we need somebody in there. I I don't know what, what the, what the answer is, but uh, they've got to try something different than what they have. Uh, and to go off Griffin's point, like you talk about bring, even your point, Mike, you talk about bringing those guys off the edge. You talk about a guy like Leon, a guy like Derek. These are guys that were converted from the end to linebackers. These are not the opposite right. way where you got guys like safe, bigger box safety types coming in to play linebackers. These are guys that have played around the line of scrimmage with their hand in the dirt their entire life. So it can kind of take away a what they do as a peripheral strength as a linebacker, but also just not to like that lack of adjustment that Griffin talked about in terms of scheme versatility and not allowed to see, you know, another layer or potentially unlock another, you know, side of their game. That, that has been really disappointing considering those specifically, those two guys in their back. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
Yeah, there's there's no question. Um, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. The, the one caveat I'll say is I think it's going to be as bad or worse this week against Florida State. But the caliber of the defense of the fronts that they're going to be facing from that point on, you look at Virginia Tech, Boston College, you know, those types, the talent level goes way down. I mean, sure. you're not you're not talking like you're going from top 10 to top 20. You're going from top 10 to top 90. I mean, you're dropping a lot. So you're much closer to what to the talent level that you were playing in the beginning of the season, more specifically, probably against Purdue. Uh, than than the other ones but uh, that's if you're looking for a silver lining I think that's where you find it now another issue in this game and I think it's shown itself the last two games are the issues with the wide receivers and I think they're really missing Aronde Gadsden and his ability to put pressure on opposing defenses teams don't respect Syracuse's passing attack and they basically just play their receivers straight up man and then try to do a bunch of things with their front seven to confuse Garrett Schrader and put a spy on him. And, you know, if, if they're spying him, that means that you should have one less guy in coverage, which means somebody should be able to, to get open and they're not getting open. And then they're still having issues with drops. So how does that fix itself? Is there somebody on the roster that can step up and, and make this better? Is it part of the talent, or the the teams that they're playing as well, much better on the defensive side, especially in the secondary than what they played in the first four games. What's the issue with the receivers? We'll go back to you, Griffin. I think one of the telltale signs for me post-game was how Garrett said, we had guys who didn't come to play. And as I sat back and I thought about who that was, it has to be Damian Alford. Because you look at his last two games, he has one catch for 35 yards. That 35-yard catch came late against Clemson, did set up a touchdown drive against the Tigers, which is nice. But still, if that's going to be your go-to guy, you're expecting him to really take command of a previous role that OG had. And it just has not happened. And it's so unfortunate because I really like Damien. He's a great guy. He's a, a captain on a team. Like The guys around him respect him in his play, but it's so up and down and inconsistent where he hasn't shown opposing defenses that he can be that number one guy, because even right now, even though on the depth chart, he is the number one ride receiver. He's not making plays to allow them to respect him enough to have other guys get open because all that's happening right now is they're sending him long or they're having him in the intermediate pass game. And he's being a non-factor. Granted, you've had other guys step up like Yumari and Donovan Brown at some times, which has been nice. But you're still not having that solidified go-to guy that you know you can depend on at any point in the game. And with Isaiah Jones out, that's another guy who you could have thought could have fulfilled that role. So I really do have a lot of concern moving forward. And I don't think that that's just something that you can scheme up at this point in time. It's something where you, you have to go to your drawing board and look, these are the guys that we currently have available. How can we, like I was talking about on the defensive line, play to their strengths? What can we do to make them get separation? Is there something throughout the week that we're missing in our game plan that's going to allow these guys to at least have a little bit more separation to make things easier on Garrett? Because right now, like you said, Mike, I think defensive coordinators on these opposing teams, they're making it really, really easy on them in the past game. 
No question. Now, here's here's where things could potentially get better. Um, Isaiah Jones did not start and he did not play a significant role, but he was back on the field a little bit in this game. So your hope is that at least I think post Florida State that he comes back and is is back to being healthy and being himself. And then I did see some flashes from Amari Hatcher in this game. So, you know, if. Again, it feels like we keep saying this if with Damian Alford, but if he can be more consistent, been saying this for two and a half years at this point. But, um, you know, if you get Isaiah Jones back and Amari Hatcher is, you know, continues to grow and takes on more of a role, then perhaps you have something. But again, that's a lot of ifs, and you need all of those ifs to come true if you want opposing defenses and opposing defensive coordinators to respect what you can do through the air. And until they do, they're going to basically dare you to throw against them and take away Garrett Schrader's running ability and LaQuint Allen's running ability. And that puts the Syracuse offense in a bind. Uh, Josh, your thoughts on what you've seen from the receiving core to this point. Uh, Griffin is, he's a very nice guy. He's my bestie for the rest of for a reason. And he's, but he, he's definitely downplaying it. You, you, you might haven't covered this team. Just having seen the, the arc of this team, especially with Damien's entire career, you can attest probably the more this to me, but he's not a number one receiver. He's a guy again, with that high weight speed combo, he's off the bus all American. But he play he's a guy that looks like Tarzan, plays like James. And I don't feel uncomfortable saying it like that because this has been an ongoing thing with him. Last year to where, you know, outside of Gaston, we wanted to see somebody kind of just uh, perpetually step up on the outside receiver type role, and he wasn't able to do it. Now with OG down, it's, you know, throwing just essentially handing him ref and snaps without it being proven that he could be a, you know, a constant difference maker. It's not working. And you talk with Griffin talked about some of the routes that they're running in terms of letting some of these DCs off the hook. Like, I, oh, yeah, bro, a guy, two guys that can't separate running a post and one guy running the go. Oh, let me see how difficult that is to defend. So you talk about the receiving core. They just had we had to change up in terms of the way that these guys are going to win. We went into the season thinking that it's going to be like a Twin Towers look with OG. Zay and Dane, a lot of jump balls, a lot of fit, a lot of goal routes, a lot of guys, a lot of things to where we're gonna, you know, ask you guys to make plays with guys on them down the field. A that you got two of those guys haven't been on the field consistently, and the one guy that, that has been isn't able to do that on a regular basis. So when you evaluate the roster that you got in front of them, the the roster that's in front of you, would a Donovan Brown who's become you know straight a security blanket? Would a guy like Omar Hatcher that had a hundred yards in the first game and kind of essentially been kind of under the radar ever since then? You know, a guy in Devin Lawrence that also is a, a really good athlete, especially out of that like H back type of role and things like that. We have to run different routes. We got to run a lot. We got to run crossers. We got to run slants. We got to run these things that are going to get these guys open and change the, the the route combinations that are in you know Jason Beck's playbook. Because again, we're not working with the twin towers type of thing. We're not having guys that are going to be able to make contested catches down the field, twenty yards down the field with a cornerback on the, with a safety over top. With the like Griffin said, with the new personnel that's currently on the roster taking the snaps, we have to uh, we have to acknowledge that and change up the way that these guys are running their route. So we're not asking a guy like Donovan Brown and uh, Omar Hatcher to run like a, a slot fade with a dig combo. Let those make those guys get separation with some routes, with with some crossers, with some digs, with things over the middle to where they're running away from guys and man coverage, and allow those guys to do what they do best, which is you know get real real, real in balls that are, have been you know eight to 10 yards down the field and make plays after the catch. We can't continue to fit these square pegs in these round holes. And I think when you look at the route combinations, the stuff that has been happening so far in terms of the lack of success with Schrader down in the downfield game, that's 
Shredded accuracy does need to improve, but there's also a lot of stuff that we're not putting him in the best position to win. And we got to just, we got to be more cognizant of the guys that's out there and what they're best at. So two things. One, I said in my season preview before the season started that if Damian Alford was going to realize that talent, I felt like it had to start now because if it's not happening at this point, and I hope he proves me wrong, I don't feel like it's going to happen. Uh, now, everyone develops differently, and it obviously could still happen, but I really thought this year, now I was partially predicating that on the fact that OG was going to be commanding a lot of attention, and he'd be getting a lot of one-on-one coverage and getting those opportunities. But with him there, with him not there, it still hasn't happened. So um, it's he's either going to figure it out, and the light bulb is going to go off, and all of a sudden he's just going to take off, or it's, it's not going to happen. Um, and, you know, leaning toward the ladder on that. The other thing is, I'd like to see some more freaking screen passes. You know, like one of the things that we've commented on, I think both this year and last year, is that the wide receivers are pretty good blocking wide receivers. So, like, throw a quick screen out to LaQuint Allen with your receivers downfield and let them block. I mean, yeah, maybe it's not going to get you 20, 30 yards every time, but if your running game is not working, that can be an extension of your running game to get four, five, six yards here and there. I think that's an option that they could go to as well to to possibly change things up and, and keep themselves ahead of the chains instead of always being in third and long situations when you can't throw the ball consistently anyway. So now with back-to-back losses in their back pocket and what most are expecting will be a third after they face Florida State this weekend, the question is, has the last two games and what we've seen from them on the field changed what your outlook is for the rest of the season? Is Syracuse still a bowl team? Are they still capable of getting to seven, eight wins with the way the schedule plays out? We will start with you on that one, Josh. Um, I guess there's a difference. Changing my thoughts on this team versus changing the outlook on this team, two different questions to be answered. Changing the outlook of this season for this team, no. In a very narrow sense, no. The back end of the schedule is still what it is. Talking about Virginia Tech, BC, Georgia Tech, who looks a lot better. Hey, Mario Cristobal, sit all the way down. Don't know what you're doing, buddy. But regardless of that, like you're still getting a weaker back end of the ACC schedule. And I think you still already have four in the way that, you know, you're facing that disappointment last year. But it's the same kind of um, scenario where it's a downhill thing to get into bowl eligibility going into the back half of the season versus kind of having to fight off stream a little bit against a tougher schedule. So in terms of what I see the outlook of the season being, I, that, that hasn't changed for me. But in terms of how I perceive this team, yeah, definitely changed. <clears throat> I won't say a lot, but definitely a, a substantive amount. We talk about what – what do we even talk about coming into this three-game stretch? Like, these don't necessarily have to be wins, but you want to see close competitive games. You want to see – improvement in improvement areas, areas that, you know, were weaker. And you wanted to see just the talent of the team really measure out and see where they are, where they were amongst ACC elites. And I think through two games so far, and unless there's a major jump to unexpected type of performance against FSU, I think we kind of fell flat on our face on all three of those things. Competitive games, obviously not last week. Clemson right on the board of competitiveness, I, but I wouldn't call it a competitive game. If a Clemson fan called that game a blowout, I would not be mad at them. Um, improvement areas and the things we needed to improve on. O-line got, got manhandled against a Clemson front. Talking to this game, we kind of expected with a drop in talent, that to be an improvement area, no improvement. And with the receiving core, not a lot of, you know, positive things to take home from that anyways. So in terms of, I guess, the talent perception of this team so far, you know, we 
definitely we're in this bubble. So and every beat reporter and media member for their local team is. You're in this beat, you're in this bubble to where you're surrounded by these guys on a daily basis. You talk about they take up so much, you know, mental capacity for you that you're forced, you're not you're forced to have like an elevated version just to analyze them deeper and think more critically about them than you know any other team in the country. So when we talked about this team going in, like yeah, we had elevated expectations of you know how talented this team was. What guys like a Laquin Allen could do coming at Deshaun Tucker. What guys like a Damon Alford or Isaiah Jones or even you know some of the other pieces like a Donovan Brown, what they were going to do coming to this season. And I think that these guys, these last two games have just unequivocally unequivocally shown us this team is not as as talented as we thought it was going into this ACC stretch. So. For me, at that the talent level and what this team could be ceiling wise, and I guess how they measure up in the ACC, definitely taking a step back towards middle to lower middle tier ACC team versus upper middle tier, which is kind of what we had the Mac going into the season. But for the outlook of the season in terms of what this where they can go, I don't see that changing a, a ton. Yeah, you know what's what's funny is last year we we kind of had a thing when Syracuse started six and zero. We had the bring on Bama talk, right? Is is kind of a tongue in cheek thing, and every week Syracuse would win, and every week we'd say, hey, "Bring on Bama!" Syracuse is a playoff team as of right now, and uh, it's really disappointing they couldn't keep that going longer this year. Really, really sad about that. That's probably the biggest travesty in all of this is uh, it it didn't allow me to go with the bring on Bama for a longer period of time, even though we probably should adjust that to bring on Georgia because I think Georgia's the, probably the top dog, but uh, regardless. Um, yeah, you know, I, I tend to agree with you. I think, uh, you know, we, we overvalued some things with, with this team, but also the way the back end of the schedule plays out, you know, your point about Georgia tech, they're a weird team. They're really like, they get blown out at home by Bowling green. It was terrible. And then they go on the road and beat Miami. Now, part of them beating Miami was the fact that Miami made one of the all time great coaching blunders. Um, and the worst part is I read, he did the same thing at Oregon. Well, he doesn't do it at all. He's like a perpetual non-niller of the yeah. football. Yeah, is- and and he's lost twice to inferior opponents as a result. And you would have thought, after doing that at Oregon and losing to Stanford as a result of that, that you would have corrected, made an adjustment, and not done that again. And yet, here it is. And uh, uh didn't hurt him too much because they got like a top 100 recruit that committed, I think, today. So uh, they lost the game and they got an elite recruit as a result of it. So, you know, um, it is what it is from that standpoint. But listen, the rest of their schedule, every team that they play after Florida State is a game that Syracuse probably should win Uh, at Georgia Tech, probably being the most difficult of of, of that group because they have proven that they can play up to competition, but they also play down to competition, whereas the Pittsburghs, the Virginia Techs and the Boston Colleges, they're just bad football teams. They are. And if you're Syracuse and you consider yourself a bold team and a team that can win six, seven, eight games, then those are teams that you should beat. And Wake Forest has been kind of meh, especially on the road. So, again, those are games you should win if you consider yourself even a decent football team at this point. So uh, I think well said on that on that standpoint, Josh. So, Griffin, we'll go to you and your thoughts on what this means for the rest of the season. I think all three of us had very similar outlooks on how this season would go. I think with Sydney not here, it makes this conversation a little bit more different because she was a lot more optimistic than us in what the ceiling could be and, and being a nine-win team. But I remember going into the season, I did say that in this three-game stretch of Clemson, UNC, and Florida State, you have to try to win one of those games or at least be competitive. 
And the game that I felt least confident in out of all three of these is the upcoming game against Florida State. So if they could prove us wrong, that would be great. But I don't have very high hopes for this game, especially in a tough environment uh, down against the Seminoles. So like you mentioned, I mean, the back half of the schedule does make things easier. And I think a lot of fans will come back and be in good graces after this because in their last five games, only four ACC wins combined between those five teams. I know it's early on in conference play, but that says a whole lot about five teams who have really not all played one another either, and they're still not getting wins. So I think if you can bounce back, especially a bye week that will be much needed, maybe you get some other guys healthy, especially some playmakers on offense. You go into a short week on the road against Virginia Tech, that'll make people a lot more happy if you can walk away with a win there. Then to come back home against Boston College, then you can start to you know kind of get the wheels spinning again, go uh, to New York City in a home game. Uh, in the Bronx against Pitt, and then from there on out, like you said, I think Georgia Tech probably is the hardest game left on their schedule, and then capping off home against Wake Forest, uh, that could be a coin flip game. But regardless, I think you're still seeing what we all talked about in the beginning of the year, another bowl team, back-to-back years, that's more steps in the right direction. But it is unfortunate to see against the top echelon teams in the conference that Syracuse just isn't there yet. They're not at that point to go especially on the road against these teams and come out with either close games or victories. Yeah. I mean, barring some substantial injuries in the next game or two, um, those five games that you close out your schedule with, if you can't go two and three and get to a bowl game, I mean, woof, right. Well, woof. I mean, there, there's no other words than that. Um, it, it just, it, but here's the thing though. The bye week is almost placed in the, perfect spot for Syracuse based on the way the schedule has laid out because you can go into this game with Florida state and you get out of it relatively healthy. And you've got that three game rough stretch, which everyone coming into the season pretty much said, I'm expecting Syracuse to lose those three games. And the most fan thing ever is for Syracuse to do what you expect and then freak out over the fact that they did what you expect. And trust me, I am guilty of this. I do this with the Eagles every week, okay? I I get it. I understand it. But even the most optimistic came in saying, I think Syracuse is going to win their four non-conference games. And at best, they're going to win one of those three games, if not lose all three of them. And then I think the rest of the schedule sets up for them to win four more. And that gives you eight wins. okay. They're still on target to do that. And the one thing I'll say about this three-game stretch, it would be the most Syracuse thing ever to play like crap against Clemson and North Carolina and then go put your best performance of the three at Florida State, a game everyone thinks is going to be the worst of the three in terms of how you're beaten. That would be the most Syracuse thing ever. That would just That's just what, what they would do. It would not surprise. It's like when the comment was made, uh, I think one of you guys brought this up earlier, was um, – only Syracuse can block a punt and have it turn into a first down for the other team. That's the most Syracuse thing ever. The most Syracuse thing ever from the schedule would be you play like crap against these two teams. Everyone's expecting you to lose by 30 or 40 points going to play at Florida state. And then you make that one a ball game. The one silver lining is Florida state has played down to its competition on a couple of occasions this year. They weren't extremely sharp against Virginia tech this past weekend, and they made Boston college look like a competent football team. And 
you know, that was a game that they were very much in danger of losing in the fourth quarter. And uh, Florida State is so much better talent wise, everything than what Boston College is. So if you're Syracuse, you're hoping maybe they're looking ahead. I think they play Miami the week after, if I'm remembering that correctly, or they've maybe I've got the, the schedule wrong, but um, you're hoping maybe they're looking ahead to what's left. They're not taking you as seriously. It's and Duke. Duke, it's Duke. Duke. Okay. So they've got a ranked opponent coming in. Um, although, you know, that was knows? starting quarterback. Yeah. Starting quarterback situation there. Um, but you've got a ranked opponent coming in and, um, you know, you're hoping if you're Syracuse that they, again, kind of overlook you, think that they can just show up and beat you and you don't get their best effort. And that allows you to stay in the game longer than what most people expect. So um, either way, we'll see how it all plays out. We'll be back with you next week to break it all down and uh, get ready for Syracuse's bye week for Josh and Griffin. I'm Mike McAllister, and we'll see you next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.